the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Stafford Macy is a Bitcoin maximalist, meaning that there's pretty much only one crypto that grabs his attention. He's also a board member at Discovery Bank and the CSIR. He's a tech investor and a follower of, of pretty much anything that happens in the digital space. There are more than a few serious commentators who fall into this camp of Bitcoin maximalist. Well, what does that mean? Bitcoin only or no exposure to Ethereum, Solana and other potential exciting projects that are under furious development at the moment? Well, we're going to find out what is a Bitcoin maximalist. Welcome, Stafford. It's Thank good you. to have you on the first time on the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast. Can you start off by explaining what you understand by a Bitcoin maximalist and how did you come into crypto and how did you adopt this position? I don't like the tag Bitcoin maximalist because I think I'm one of those Bitcoin maximalists that believes ultimately that the original is Bitcoin and that there's nothing outside of it and everything else is a copy of it and it's a bad copy of it. But I am fully aware that some of the assets in crypto that are evolving that we're seeing today could have useful potential. But the way they are being implemented and the way they are being brought to market and the structure around them, I think, requires a lot more thought. I think ultimately, and this is probably very controversial, I think ultimately everything cascades back into Bitcoin, the original. I think uh, all of these things become augments in some layered version inside of Bitcoin ultimately. Why? Because Bitcoin, it's not that I'm a Bitcoin maximalist. I get that. But I think Bitcoin is the only one that is true money. It is the only form of money that humanity has ever seen that's incorruptible, you know, immutable, sensor resistant, and it will be money that will be around for a thousand years from now. We've never had money in the history of humanity. We've never had money like this. We can and correlate it to gold in a, in a weird way, but we've never had anything like this. Right. And of course, there's no central authority that controls it. It's controlled by computer code. You know, yes. in fact, there's a democratic election every 10 minutes, every time a block is created. Yes. So it is. I just wondered, you know, you're sitting on the board of Discovery Bank. You know, yeah. how does this your, your views chime with, the, <laughs> you know, the fractional reserve lending model of typical banking? So I don't speak in any capacity relative to the independent executive board positions that I have. So I'm an independent and I don't speak on behalf of any army in my personal capacity. Let me sure. make that clear. I believe not in things religiously from a business perspective or pure technological perspective. I believe it from a consumer perspective. The notion that Bitcoin is going to destroy central banking, the, the notion that Bitcoin will destroy banks is immature thinking. Uh, it's not how the world works. Why? Because not because of, of belief in institutions in any way or form, but I believe in where the consumer is. I grew up in El Dorado Park, south of Johannesburg. I know that when payments don't work, people die. It's not a, like payments is not just a fun, cool fintech thing. I built a business in the financial services industry before the term fintech existed called Thumbs Up. And we built a mechanism that plugged into a phone to convert that phone into a card acceptance machine. That was called the Payment Pebble. Apps are launched it over here. We launched it in Australia with the ANZ Bank. We took it global, et cetera, and we raised capital. And it was one of the first big fintechs on the continent at the time that we did it. We did it before Square was around, which Jack Dorsey did. So my background to that organization was instantiating it because I had a fundamental conviction around payments. And I wanted to take all my technological prowess and the little that I had to coagulate an incredible team to build and invent something that didn't exist in the first place. To plug 
a device into another device that was not secure to accept a card payment was in, an insane idea at the time. And we were so far ahead of everyone at the time. But that gave me the background to where I am today. I have a thorough understanding of the consumer. The consumer is not going to throw their credit cards away and the cash away and go to pure Bitcoin in the next 10 years. It's not going to happen. Consumers will pay relative to what merchants are willing to accept. And the notion of an omni-channel way of engaging for consumers is the way consumers want to engage. They want to walk into your shop and spend the cash that they have. They want to walk into your shop and spend the crypto that they have. They want to spend on the card that they have. That's where the consumers are, and that's not going to change. And I have a philosophical belief. I don't think Bitcoin was built for the formal economy. You and I that have cards and electronic forms of payment, I don't think Bitcoin was built for the informal economy. Cash is underestimated. It's bigger than the informal, the formal economy. I know because when I grew up, the Shabin wasn't just a place where beer was purchased or alcohol was purchased. It was also the, the 11 o'clock on a Saturday night ATM. You went there to get 100 bucks because the lady knew your grandparents and she'd say, tell your mother on Wednesday I want my 110 rand. That's a very formal structure, a very sophisticated structure that's built around cash. That's not going to go away. I believe there's a third economy. That's an unaddressed economy. It is financially excluded. It is something that you and I can't imagine today, but it's for the guy that lives three hours outside of Shenzhen, that lives in El Dorado Park, that struggles with cash because it's mafia cash, that can't participate in the formal banking structure. What does he do? He's got goods and services. He's got capabilities to be monetized. But today, cash doesn't serve him. The formal economy doesn't serve him. I think these assets that we're building right now could address somebody like that. So that's where my philosophical view comes from. So being on the board of a bank, it's because of my background. I understand technology from that world's perspective, but I fundamentally believe a convergence will occur. I think banks will become custodians of crypto assets. I think it's just inevitable. They want to already. The intention is there. You can see them leaning in. Yes, some banks didn't want to bank some of the exchanges in South Africa, and we know that history. But you can see the regulator catching up. And the regulator is not doing this independently. The regulator is moving in South Africa relative to the leanings. Banks are leaning in on them, society from the outside that they're engaging with. They're watching the technological space. So everyone's leaning into the space. And that's why you see crypto assets being defined as assets today. That's why you see exchanges, this the other day, being entities that are regulated now and are defined and admit, admit, and that's why you see pick and pay announcing they accept Bitcoin payments now. That was right after that regulatory unlocking, right? So, so banks have a role to play here. What their role will be will be interesting. Um, I don't think they die. I don't. Banks do a lot of other stuff that makes money uh, and they have a place in society. I do think a convergence will occur. I, I think that just like the FTX fallout that we've seen today, um, an exchange is a bank. Let's be honest. I mean, if you if you accept if you're custodial of someone's store value and you lever that and you create ancillary services associated with that, you're acting in very much like banks act today in the fiat world, right? I believe banks will cascade into this as soon as the regulatory frameworks are defined. I think they'll step in here quite aggressively, and I think they'll win. And I think it's a good thing. Um, now, I don't believe that that will obviate the value propositions around anonymity, privacy, flexibility, access, that things like Bitcoin provide you. I don't think it's an either-or story. I think consumers want the freedom, but they also want the custodialship of someone that they can put their stuff into, and then there's some type of FDIC insurance associated with that. So when something blows up, that they're covered in some way or form. Where the 
the maximalists believe that, whether the crypto world believes that or not, that doesn't matter. You're just a bunch of technologists that are very into this stuff. But at the end of the day, the consumer wants peace of mind. And this is how consumers find peace of mind. And at the end of the day, a crypto wallet, when it's secure and it's protected and it's insured, etc., and you start layering it like that, looks a lot like a bank account. And the institution delivering it to you looks a lot like a bank. It's interesting that you, you think banks will enter the space quite aggressively yeah, once so. the regulation is in place and they'll win. I want you to expand on that a little okay. bit. When you say win, mm-hmm. win against who? Is there a loser? Yeah, I think I look at the exchanges that we see right now. They're interesting, but they're struggling, right? Because they're immature businesses. Let's look at, look at FTX and what's happened with FTX. Yeah, accountability, proof of reserve are terms that now are suddenly coming to the fore and the mainstream. We've heard it from like the beginning of the year, but it's becoming more and more of a mainstream, especially with these FTX fallouts, Alameda fallouts, etc. And I think proof of reserves is, is a thing that they're going to struggle with because just a Merkle tree render that says, okay, I've mined. I don't think okay. that's enough. Just yeah. explain the Merkle tree. Merkle okay. tree is a way that you organize data efficiently so that you can you don't have to load up 500 terabytes of information, you can just load up a little bit. Uh, no, Merkle tree is not exactly that. Merkle tree is the definition, it's a computer science definition of a sequence of database entries that have occurred in a distributed manner, in a decentralized form, and you can prove with that branch that all the mining relative to the transactions that happened within that domain happened in that domain. Okay, and why is it important? It's important because you want to prove that the Bitcoin that was bought or the Bitcoin that was sent to your exchange, there's a one-to-one ratio relative to my wallet. So when my wallet says I've got six Bitcoin, you can prove that my Bitcoin was mined, you own my Bitcoin, and it exists and it is there. So you can give me a, a kind of a render of it, a Merkle tree render, which is a proof that that algorithmic occurrence in the in the DLT occurred. But that's just an instant the DLT time. being the distributed, distributed ledger, ledger. The, right. the, the blockchain, right. yeah, the Bitcoin blockchain. So basically, yeah. it's an audit trail. It's an it's a tech, it's a computer science way of, Ver- of verifying yeah. verification. Correct. So yeah. let's get back to the point mm-hmm. about banks and who's going to win. Okay, so win is, is, let me fix myself. It's not win. I think banks will have a major role to play in this space. I definitely do. As soon as regulatory compliance kind of, I think you'll see mergers. I think you'll see acquisitions. I think you'll see banks expanding their portfolios to adopt these assets. It makes sense, right? Where my bank account is, where my bank app is to have another tab in that banking application. And in that tab is all my NFTs. In that tab is all my file coins in that tab is my bitcoins in my tab is all those other things see i can speak about the other crypto stuff although i'm a maximalist (laughs) i do believe that the other tokens have a play i love what they're trying to do i love nfts i think nfts are really really cool i just think that the underlying monetary framework upon which they're built is flawed that's the only thing i believe in bitcoin's true decentralization i believe it is the only form of true money and i think it's layering now gives us something that we should all take a very serious look at and that's layer two layer two suddenly there i think the lightning network which is a layer that's now emerged on top of bitcoin i think it's there today i think it's good enough it's still got a lot of adoption still got some stitching to do we still see some bugs in some of the nodes there etc but it's there it's good enough it's very exciting and essentially what it solves is the scale issue that bitcoin had bitcoin's not trying to solve for scale bitcoin's trying to solve for you know for security for bitcoin's thing is truth perpetual, right? 
Um, how do you scale that? That's difficult. We know that that's difficult. I think Lightning does that. Lightning well, I, I think the, the, the problem that bedeviled Bitcoin right at the beginning was you could only settle about six transactions a minute. I, I may be wrong on that, but it's around that. And what these, these layers on top do is just create efficiencies. You have to get to the scale of like Visa where you're doing 26,000. Well, we, we're beyond that now. Per second. Oh, yes. And, and Solana and, and, and many other projects are beyond no, that. No, Lightning is Solana faster than Solana, Visa, right. and all their capacity combined. Okay, so I think you've explained that where the banks are going. I wanted to come in with a question. We'll get your view on this. CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currencies, yeah. which is going to be the digital rand, if you like. If you read some of the commentaries on this, and I'm a bit skeptical of them because of the potential for, you know, you, you can get reckless central bank behavior where they continue to print and create inflation and impoverish people. People don't see this. It's a very hidden way of right. impoverishing people. And the second thing is it can become a bit like the Chinese social credit score where yeah, you misbehave, yeah. you know, you don't pay your, um, your car license or your taxes or something like that. You know, well, they just start, you know, cutting access to your money. And so it does take away personal sovereignty. What's your view on this? All of the above. Absolutely. You don't like them. I don't like them. And that's why I like Bitcoin. Right. <laughs> so Bitcoin, like, thank God for Bitcoin. And all the assets that go with that and all the capabilities that go with that. Because you're absolutely right. CBDCs are dangerous. We can't trust governments to work with money. Look at the history of money throughout humanity's history. Right? Look at what governments have done with money. Look at what our governments have done with money. Look at what our federal reserves have done. Look at the stimulus that they engaged with in the last three years. I mean, I saw a stat the other day that more than a third of all dollars in circulation today was printed in the last 36 months. That's extraordinary, right? You yeah. just can't issue. That's why you're seeing all the inflationary aspects. And now what do we do? We put more levers in place to kind of increment more. We've broken. The fiat system is broken. And I think people have this notion like the dollar is going to be there forever or this form of money is going to be there forever. That's very naive. You don't see money existing beyond a century, usually, on a global basis, right? And I, I almost feel like we're hitting our maturity level with our fiat currencies right now. The dollar will be the last one to fall, but let's look at all the fundamentals at the bottom. It's all broken. It really, really is. And I see central banks, I see the European Central Bank came out yesterday or the day before. I actually tweeted out, like a laugh out loud, they came out around something called Bitcoin's last breath or Bitcoin's about to die. And oh, this paper which has published. been, that, that story's been written, yeah. what, a hundred times? Yeah, anyone wants mm. to Google Bitcoin, just look at Google Bitcoin obituaries. <laughs> I think we're over 400 now. Right. So yeah, so they just issued a paper saying this is going to be Bitcoin's last breath. And So I think they are threatened by what's going on. It's going to be interesting from a social political perspective on a global basis, because if you take currency away as a, as a mechanism to enforce sanctions or, or to keep folks in line, that's, it's interesting. If you take a look at what's happening in, with Russia, with Ukraine, and you take a look at BRICS, and our BRICS may expand out, and they're looking at a new currency in and amongst those countries to, to counter the dollar. There's, there's a lot of global shifts happening at the moment. But again, thank God for Bitcoin. And that's why I think Bitcoin is the gift. Bitcoin is that thing that gives us our independence, that moves us off an inflationary asset to a deflationary asset. It moves us to a place where we can exchange value without depending on a government that will eventually debase the, the currency. If you're a South African, you should be spending urgent time understanding Bitcoin, like urgently. And I'm encouraging everyone around me to do it, like understand the stuff. Why? I mean, look at the RAND. You know, our president just imminently may resign or not. The RAND went to 18 and something the other day, right? I think now it's back to 17 again. We have wild fluctuations. The debasement of our currency is a very real thing. The foreign reserves that we depend on in this country to just day by day do what we do, 
it's a scary proposition. You know, if you're in the United States, maybe you don't think like that. Maybe in a G8 country, you're not thinking like that. But if you're new in South Africa, could there be a run on the banks? Could something like that occur? I don't know. You know, I just don't, everything looks very worrisome right now. And I, I always ask someone, if you're going to put your money anywhere in South Africa right now for the next 50 to 100 years, where are you going to put it? Just ask yourself that question. Yeah. If you had a million rand today and someone said, okay, you need to put it somewhere for your kids and you, can, you couldn't touch it again for the next 25 to 30 years, where would you put your money in South Africa right now? It's a tough Government question. bonds? Would you put it offshore? No, in South Africa. In, in South Africa. In South Africa, uh, that's no. the question. I would put it in Bitcoin. Well, you know, the, the answer to that question is kind of self-evident in a way because if you go to places like Nigeria, West Africa, where they have serious currency debasements, Bitcoin, the black market or the unofficial market in Bitcoin is huge because people understand that if they stick with the Naira or if you're in Ghana, you stick with the CD. In Malawi, the Kwacha devalued 26% this yep. year. You're going to lose, you're going to be poor. Mm-hmm. So this is why – and they're prepared to pay a premium, sometimes 20%, in order to get their hands. But once they've paid that 20%, that's it. They're locked in yep. to the Bitcoin system. Yeah, I think organizations, on a bottom-line perspective, should consider diversifying their portfolios and putting some of that liquidity into Bitcoin. I think it makes sense. Like Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. Yeah, and Elon Musk did it. And there's quite a few businesses that have done it, and a lot of businesses are doing it. And we've even seen 401ks in the United States, big pension funds, opening themselves out to have Bitcoin there too. So I do think if you have a business today in South Africa and you've got some liquidity versus leaving it in a bank, where are you going to put it? I mean, I encourage a lot of businesses, which, and, and I've helped a lot of businesses, to migrate that over into Bitcoin. Are you getting any traction with that viewpoint? Yeah, there are, is. Are, are companies actually doing that? Cautiously and silently, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, people are Bitcoin doing Bitcoin or other no, spreading Bitcoin. around? Bitcoin. Okay. You know, yeah. That's the thing, right? If you're going to take liquidity and put it into anything, then all these like other coins, you wouldn't touch it, right? right. Because it's, it's not – this is what I keep telling folks. If it's, even if it's Ethereum, if Ethereum's a bunch of developers led by this guy called Vitalik, right? And that's, they change stuff as they wish. It's an unregulated security, it's not a commodity. The only commodity in this space is Bitcoin. It is the apex coin. There's nothing like everything births from it. So all these other things that you see are things that are built on supposedly decentralization, but you can't have it all. You can't have decentralization and security and scale kind of all in the same triangle. It's impossible. Solana fixes for scale, etc., but then they give up on decentralization. Right? right? So you keep looking at all of these other things. They're just not they're not real. And, they, and the problem with them is that they lever so many things in the background, right? So if you take a look at these exchanges that have blown up, just take a look at the amount of, of Bitcoin third-party leveraging that's happening, right? And then you get coins on coins on coins on Bitcoin that's being – it's just it's insane. It's not sustainable. Well, um, I mean, I think if, if FTX was actually collateralizing its lending with Bitcoin, it probably would be a different outcome to the one that we see today. But they weren't. They were collateralizing with their own house currency, which is F- the FTT token. Yep. I looked at your LinkedIn profile. I yep. never came across you until I saw you on the Biz News. I don't want to become across to you. Okay. I'm okay, but you're not coming across me. Yeah. You describe yourself uh, on your LinkedIn profile as an AI, crypto, NFT, DeFi alchemist. Please explain that. I think the space is so young. You know, in my career, I've gone through quite a few epoch shifts from a technological perspective. Uh, You know, I kind of immersed myself in the technological space in the early mid-90s. I got into the space. I worked at Telcom. I was a software engineer over there, coder. You know, hardware engineer, software engineer. 
And because of Telcom's links to certain things, we gained access to technology before the public could see it. So we saw ARPA and DARPA nodes, and these were the kind of the, the arterial veins of points of presence, instances of the internet, before the internet had a user interface. So we got to mess with that stuff, and I was lucky to be part of folks in the room to see that. And we knew how big the internet was going to be, massive. And we were like telling everyone the internet was going to oh, be big. Are we talking back in the 90s? Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah, mid-90s. Mid, mid we told everyone. And then the browser came along, you know, Mozilla and all of that. And, and we ran around telling everyone. And when we, we told everyone this, it was very difficult because the browser was, was okay. Websites were crap and sparse. And videos downloaded over two weeks. And we were telling everyone after we got the network card and the sound card to interface um, that um, this was going to change humanity. And we'd get up on a stage, we'd put a tower, a keyboard, a mouse, and a screen, and we'd put disks in there. And then we'd scream, connect to the internet, and we'd show them this thing. And we'd say this. And people were like, but you need like a computer science degree. This is rubbish. And we were like, but this is going to – and this is what – did change humanity ultimate, right? We, but we knew it. We just, as technologists, we couldn't articulate and could, couldn't really show you. Then I saw it kind of in the late 90s with the free and open source software movement in the, in the United States. I worked for Novell. I lived there. And I went to the MIT campus and I bumped into a couple of folks that are now very prominent in, in the technological circles. One was Nat Friedman. He's now the CEO of GitHub. He reports into Satya at, at, at Microsoft. I mean, I met Nat Friedman at MIT. And I introduced him to Novell, and we did the deal, and we got Novell, which is a proprietary software company, into the free and open source software space. But when I met them for the first time at MIT, I saw a room where everyone was coding, nose rings, ponytails, tattoos, and people were just like, wow. And I went back to Novell, and I tried to explain the open source software thing to them. It was very difficult to explain because I knew it was going to be big. It was going to be huge, but it was arcane. And people were like, wait a minute, people coding for free? It's better than our proprietary software with our highly paid engineers on the 10th and the 11th floor. Go away. See, what they underestimated was that amount of human potential that was cascading into the space. You ran around, and guess what today? Look at your glowing rectangle in your hand. The core kernel that gets written, that's open source software. Most of the cloud runs on open source software. All phones run on open source software. We knew it was going to be big. I had the same experience when I touched Bitcoin for the first time. It took me two and a half years to understand Bitcoin. My first time I touched it, I didn't have a goosebumps moment. Like the first time the internet and all that, that was my goosebumps moment. Free and open source software was my goosebumps moment. But it took me two and a half years to get my aha goosebumps moment with Bitcoin. I didn't get it. I was a thumbs up at the time. I was building on proprietary banking software, you know, doing key exchanges there in a key injection facility with a manufacturing plant, you know, taking keys and energizing them on cards and then sending them into a big fat bank fabric at the back. I knew how banks worked. And then when I saw Bitcoin for the first time, I'll never forget, I was sitting with my CTO at the time and we scoffed at it. We're like, no way, man. It's too simple. Look how much goes into banking. Look how much goes into your card being put into a machine and how the issue was called up and how the acquirer was called up and how that whole handshake happens and like all the protocols and all the labs and the certification. I was like, there's no way this thing comes along and just exchanges value more securely than in the history of mankind without an intermediary. We were like, nah, rubbish, go away. And then, but it tickled me and I kept on going, kept on going. And I remember meeting with Simon Dingle in Cape Town, the journalist, he, he, he wrote a, a book on, on, on Bitcoin and, and crypto. And I sat down with him. I said, just explain this to me. And I actually sent him a text saying, onboard me. Send me some Bitcoin. And he did. 
And then I started messing around with it. Reading, 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 messing around the Satoshi white paper. And then I had my aha moment. Like, oh, my God, wait. Wait a minute. This is incredible. Now, remember my background. My background was deep banking fabric. Right. I went to ANZ Bank in Australia with my team, and ANZ Bank said, we want to put your payment people on our fabric, but you've got to build your own PCI DSS card switching infrastructure, and then we're going to send you a link into our bank, and that's how we're going to switch. So I literally had to build bank fabric globally. To have Bitcoin hit me was with that background. This is massive. This is the biggest. And the more and more I scratched, the more and more I realized, wait a minute. And this is what happens with Bitcoin. You become more religious. And I did go through the journey. I'll be honest. I did go through the Bitcoin's great, mm, but I like the blockchain. Mm, wait a minute. I like Ethereum and all the, the altcoin stuff. And then you get back to, okay, wait, no, it is Bitcoin. So everyone kind of goes through that, I don't know, that circle of relevance in some way or form where you, you need to immerse yourself and you think it's blockchain. And I quickly realized that blockchains outside of Bitcoin is rubbish. It's just rather do it with a SQL server and a bunch of web services and it's cheaper and it's easier. And I ran around telling people this for the last few years, and people were like, no, 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 no. What are you saying? Blockchain's forever. It's going to be the next. And I'm like, no, blockchain's actually cuck technology. Outside of Bitcoin, a DLT is actually horrible. It's inefficient to replicate a database in that particular way and to merge it in that way and to mine it in that way. It's extremely inefficient, right? And, and the power consumption, all the arguments. But for Bitcoin, these are necessities on, an, on a substrate level. That's what makes it so amazing. It's because it's the only unique thing that's been able to do what it does. And again, I come back, that was my ranking. So that was my journey. My journey was computer science background, technology background. That's what's got me into this space. And what I do is I do lecture at some of the universities on the executive MBA programs. I do do keynotes on a local and international basis. And I do get pulled into the room around with CEOs and boards, et cetera, to ask the dumb questions like, okay, what the hell is this? Make it make sense for us. And is this a thing we need to consider? That's been in my career for the last five years. But I've been on the bench. I've been semi-retired. When I jumped out of thumbs up, I didn't want to do anything again for a while. And now this has really invigorated me. Bitcoin's the thing. And it's the greatest thing in my entire career that I've ever seen. Very interesting. Okay. So any discussion about crypto, people tend to think of it as a speculative asset class. And of course, that's very limiting because, yes. you know, you're looking at these wild gyrations in price, you know, Bitcoin up, uh, you know, 100%, it's down 85%, whatever it is. I mean, looking, there's a revolution that is unfolding before our eyes. You know, See, but the price doesn't matter. Let me give you two examples of why the price doesn't matter. When you utilize this as a bear instrument for the instantaneous transmission of value, you change lives. Here's a very good example. We saw pick and pay doing acceptance, right? That's interesting. But what's more interesting is for the Zimbabwean guy living in Cape Town who wants to go into PEP or Ackermans to do a remittance that is not doing it today because he has, he's got to go up to about four, 5,000 rands worth of rands to do the remittance because of the cost of the transaction. He has to pay Makuru or whoever company to do it. And then finally, the money or the goods and services land up in Harare at his family. That remittance is a, it is a tax that is heavy on him. It, it affects his life tangibly. And this is what I'm explaining right now is what 40 plus million people in this country go through on a daily basis when it comes to payments or transmission of money. This is not just international remittances. This is movement of value that you and I deem negligent because the basket size is small. It's four or 5,000 rand. That's one grocery cart in Woolworths. 
in a week. We don't really think about that. But that's someone's two to three months worth of money that they're trying to send as sustenance to their family. They have to save that up, then go into a Pepo and Ackermans or whatever with that chunk of change and then do that transaction. And then there's this big tax and then there's a wait for it to happen and then it emerges, emerges in Harari. Now imagine a world with that human being, not imagine, this is possible today. And I know this is happening today. Imagine that guy, instead of saving up four or 5,000 rand and then paying the tax and all that big, imagine he got a phone call or a text message from his mom sitting in a line in Harari saying, I want to buy this loaf of bread. Can you quickly buy it for me? And instantaneously, as he's standing there, putting down the shovel and the bricks and the cement, he can open up his phone and he can send her four rand in a nanosecond instantaneously, and she can buy that bread. At a cost of a fraction of a percent. Correct. That changes everything. Right. I mean, looking five or ten years into the future, this is a pretty exciting thing, and and I think you've kind of – you've really sort of layered the excitement of what Bitcoin has done to the world. And it took you two and a half years, and it's taken a lot of people a lot of time. There there is something going on here. It's censorship resistance. It is distributed. In other words, there is no control of this. It's very hard even to regulate this thing. That is coming. There are ways that that, that it will be regulated. Give us your picture. What's this world going to look like five to ten years from now? I think we live in a world where, where money becomes frictionless. And in a world where money becomes frictionless, it's a world that's a much better world for the majority of the human population today. The majority of the human population today suffers because of the friction associated with money exchange. And money is the most elemental, substrate, foundational aspect of society, the exchange and the bartering and the movement. The internet gave us the ability to put our wares on the internet and to sell them locally, nationally, globally, I mean, and commerce just ballooned. From a GDP perspective, the promise is the souls where a person sitting where I grew up in El Dorado Park can take their talent, their products and services in a monetary way and gauge on a global basis unlocks incredible latent human potential. And, and that's what I believe this does. You know, it, it, NFTs unlocked creative monetary value for creatives. Now imagine that was for the person that's sitting in El Dorado Park able to do X, Y, and Z. I think that is an incredible world that we live in. And that framework cannot be debased. That framework cannot be influenced by a dictatorship. That framework allows for a global reach. That's a beautiful world. That's a world I want to live in. Because I know that there's so many people where I grew up that have so much to give the world that the world we'll never see if we keep going the way we're going. I think this creates an unleashing of human expression. I think we'll solve cancer this way. You know, people say the only next billion people to be connected to the internet will come from Africa. That's correct. But they're not just going to get connected. They're going to get connected to disparate species of artificial cognition. They're going to be connected to this monetary system or network that's completely decentralized. And I think that will allow us to coagulate latent human capacity in a way for us to collectively and in a collective intelligence way solve some of our biggest problems. That's why I don't believe the next Twitter will come from Africa or the next Facebook will come from Africa. I think the next Twitter of water purification will. I think the next Facebook of agriculture will. But the only way that's going to happen, truly, truly happen, is not just connecting people. 
but allowing for this monetary network to engage in this frictionless way, that's an unleashing of latent human potential. That's an incredible, an incredible. I mean, do you see this as like cell phones? You know, everybody pretty much in Africa these days has a smartphone. Even in some of the poorest areas, you'll find mm -hmm. them with smartphones. That was a great leap because it, setting aside the point that data is so expensive in some places and still is, the fact that you could connect to the world and get information the same way that somebody in Europe could, that was a game changer. I, I was gold mining in Ghana for mm -hmm. some years, and uh, I remember these guys, these Europeans would come out there, and they think they'd get gold at 20% below the London Metal Exchange price. And, you know, I had to disabuse them of that idea. Was, these guys in the bush, you know, they hardly ever go to a city. They know what the price is right. today because they've got those phones. Correct. Is this the same kind of thing? This is the same kind of leap that we're looking at? Look now? at it this way. It's bigger. This is bigger than the internet. This is 1999, and I'm telling you that the internet's going to be really, really big. And you're looking at it going, mm, don't know. Yeah, okay. Maybe you can put a magazine and a website up. Yeah, okay. If you in 1999 understood like we did when I was living in the United States, the fundamental protocol and architecture of what was happening, the HTTPs, the HTMLs, the HD, you know, all these open protocols that were being written and what would, would spawn. Let's digress and say, okay, how has the internet impacted humanity since 1997 up until today, right? Now let's quantify that and make it the number 10. What lays ahead with Bitcoin? 10 to the power of 1 million. That's how big I think the impact will be. The impact is going to be tectonic. When you can start paying for something on a per second basis, that changes everything. It's just like when, with AI, right? I mean, you have the horse and you clickety-clacking, clickety-clacking, right? It's about the one horsepower. Then electricity came along with the, the engine and all of that. And then we, you sat on your bum and we gave you access to 500 horses in the car, right? Then you fast forward to today and now we have 500 minds in the vehicle. That changes the vehicle, which we can't really, in our skeuomorphic way of thinking, we can't really imagine. Like, just like, we, like the car first had stirrups before it had a steering wheel because we rode horses for so long. So when the engine came along with the four wheels, we thought, okay, we're going to turn with stirrups. Mm. Then the steering came along afterwards. And I think in the same skeuomorphic way, we're looking at this unlocking where we are right now. This will be, this is bigger than the internet. <laughs> this is so big. I want to scream. That's how big it is. It is. And every time I sit down with somebody and I install a moon wallet or take a Tor browser and I send them Bitcoin and they send each other Bitcoin. What I saw was a demonstration we did the other day with a bunch of business leaders. I saw jaw drop, droppings all around when we showed someone in Rand paying for someone in London's beer in less than two seconds in real time utilizing the Lightning Network. That's when you start realizing that it's not about the medium of exchange. It's not about the store of value. It's about this infrastructure that we suddenly have that gives us the ability to exchange value instantaneously. And when you experience that for the first time, truly experience that for the first time, when you see it, it sets you back. It's that moment where you just kind of sit back and you go, whoa, wait, wait, wait. Something big is undergoing. Something's happening here. And that's it. And I see people like Strike, a company with the Strike wallet. And, you know, take a look at what they're doing in El Salvador. You know, this is coming and this is really, 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 really big. And it's very, very exciting. And again, if you ask me, what does the world look like? I'm very, very positive. Because I think when you allow technological impedance across to cut across society, you know, on a neutral basis, 
and give everyone access, what normally happens is a tsunami of, of latent human expression. And whenever that happens, incredible things happen. I mean, social media has been, has been bad, but it's also been really good. Social media has allowed people to discover people. It has solved certain problems. This will do it at a, at a rate and in a way that you and I can't imagine today. I want to come back to NFTs and yeah. DeFi, get your opinion about that. NFTs created a marketplace for and, and made scarcity out of digital assets in a way that wasn't possible before because you have a picture up on the internet, you know, 10 million people can mm -hmm. look at it, but now you, you can actually have ownership of that, verifiable. Decentralized finance as well is a fascinating project. Mm -hmm. It's It's got its hiccups, it's got liquidity problems, but there again, you can lend without even disclosing your name. Nobody wants to know your name right. when you go and borrow on a DeFi platform. They survived. What, what we're seeing around us, these failures that have happened, the FTXs, the BlockFi's, these are centralized. In other words, there's a human there making bad decisions. Yes. Whereas right. with a DeFi system, it's computer code. These problems have been thought out before. Mm -hmm. Where they do run into problems potentially is on the issue of liquidity. What's your view on that? I think it's huge. I think it's massive. I think you're asking me two questions. And one is, is, is NFTs, and the other one is you know, distributed finance and its architecture. I think NFTs are extraordinary. What's my view from a technology perspective? I love its instantiation because it reminds me a lot of GeoCities in the mid-90s on the internet. When you went to GeoCities, you went there to create a website. It was a place called GeoCities. You saw crappy websites, cool websites, crap websites. When you went to the internet in the mid-90s to late-90s, you sometimes see the under-construction sign, and you see the little guy with the yellow and black sign and the little siren on top, and it to show that the website's under construction. And GeoCities was this place where people just went, and they created, and they created, and they created, and, and it was stupid, and it, it was mediocre work. And Clay Shirky came out as an author, and he's a futurist technologist guy, and he said what taught him, GeoCities taught him something about when human beings en masse do something, even if it's deemed mediocre work, to never, ever ignore it. I mean, the thin protocols that run the internet today, that was mediocre work. It was a couple of guys sitting around coding. I mean, HTML, PHP, all these little things that led to open source websites. and That was written by a couple of people just getting together on an academic level and just messing around. And then it got legs and more legs and more legs and more legs. Um, GeoCities were similar, you know, kind of on a, on a higher level. You had the protocol level and GeoCities came along on, that, on top of that and gave, gave us websites and visual. NFTs reminds me a lot of that. <laughs> and NFTs is, is interesting because of the fun aspect of it, Bored Apes through to, you know, World of Women, all, all these different communities. Now, whether you are skeptical about Bored Apes and what they're doing and generating their own token, et cetera, et cetera, that's okay. That's the noise on the top. That's the GeoCities noise. What I look at is the protocol development at the bottom. And that's very, very interesting. I think NFTs are building the pipes, frameworks, and mechanisms, the architecture for true identity on the internet. And that's very, very interesting. So yes, a board ape is an NFT, but what if my electronic patient health record was an NFT? What, you know, if you keep going down that road, um, uh, title deeds. I love the notion of contracts on the blockchain and the immutability, all that value proposition. I like it, but I like it from an authentication perspective, a non-repudiation, repudiation perspective. I like the architecture that's emerging from this, this metaphorical geocities that are happening. Is, ask me about board apes, I can't comment. I'm more logical in my thinking than I am artistic. But I understand people valuing art in a particular way. And the, if you think a board ape is worth that, well, 
that's relative to what the two of you are willing to buy. Whether I think a board ape is just a, a gift that I can copy, I've missed the point. That's not the point. That's not how the artwork worlds works, and that's not how it's ever going to work. My thinking is more about, and where I look, I love to lift, lift the lid and look underneath. And what I'm seeing underneath is incredible innovation and very interesting innovation that will lead to you know, NFT-based identity and uh, NFT-based attributes associated with identity. That's more interesting for me. And when I see people going to a restaurant in New York City and authenticating with their board ape to get in, when I see a class of services only if you are board ape with these features that you can gain access to, forget the noise and the fuzzy-wuzzy stuff on the top. Look at the underlying substrate of what's happening and see if it has applicability across other industries. Healthcare education, verification of, of ownership of assets, etc. This is where the NFT substrate work will have huge implications, massive implications. I love it. I follow it. I have invested. I've gone to OpenSea and all of those, and I've messed around with it on the fund side. But the protocol side is a lot more interesting to me, and I think it's going to be big. On the DeFi side, yes. I think that's incredible. Um, the ability to take a piece of what you have, stake it, uh, mint it, stake it, and then lever it, that's interesting. Um, it almost flattens what banks do with our, our cash today, right? I mean, it, the mortgage that you have with the bank is not something that just sits there as a loan. That's an asset that gets levered by the bank and it gets loaned against and it gets parted with and it gets exchanged. Now, can that now suddenly happen where we have a bank in our pocket? I think it's not dissimilar to the scientist that famously said, I don't see a need why everyone should have a computer in their home. And Bill Gates came I, along I, and said- I think that was the IBM CEO, in fact, yeah, who yeah. said that. Yeah, and then I, like, I think Bill Gates came along and said, well, what about a computer in every pocket? Mm. And that was unimaginable, right? So I think taking that on a principal metaphorical basis, well, what about a bank in every pocket? Right. That's interesting, right? right? So whatever a bank can do, you can do in your individual capacity. You can loan, you can lever, you can stake, you can mint. And that's why I think what we see with exchanges today, these bridges from fiat into crypto, they're interesting. But what's more interesting to me is, you know, these distributed exchanges that run on mobile phones. That's interesting. I mean, I saw some tech just a couple of days ago, I think yesterday or the day before, and I've been messing around with it where someone has built, I don't want to get too technical, someone has built a lightning node capability that runs on a mobile phone's browser as a browser plugin on a mobile phone, that converts your mobile phone into a lightning node. So it doesn't have to run in your room and arcane architecture. It could just literally, your phone becomes a node in the network. That's insane. That's like what happens there suddenly just unlocks so much. So it's still so early. It's still day one. And like people think they're too late. They look at the Bitcoin price and mm. not once in this discussion that we talk about, is it going to go up or down? I don't care. Because to me, if it's $1, it will have the same impact as you, on humanity as it is when it is at $100,000. Now, if you did ask me, look, what's my speculative view on it? I think it's the most undervalued asset class in the entire world. I do. I think it's the most undervalued in the entire world. It's got 21 million. It's got limited supply. It's, it's got a leak of just over a percent a year. It's not dissimilar to gold. I, I think it is an incredible store of value. I think if you... I mean, just on a pure math basis, if you get the necessary spot ETFs, regulatory compliance stuff in place, if you get a trillion dollars to cascade into it, I think mathematically it means it's $500,000 a coin. Mm. 
if you get two to two and a half trillion and you let, you're sitting at a million dollars a coin, is that feasible? That's conservative. Mm. And then, of course, it also depends. It's relative because uh, what is the dollar going to be worth when that, that happens? You know, Stefan Massey, a fascinating discussion about Bitcoin yes. and about the philosophy behind it. Yes. We're going to have to continue this discussion. <laughs> We've run out of time. I, I do want to go into your views on AI on a separate uh, podcast. I'd love sure. to have you back again. Yeah. And. Also, some of these developments, I think, that are spin-offs of the Bitcoin white paper, DeFi, NFTs, right. that kind of thing. We're going to have to pursue that later, but sure. I really appreciate you coming sure. in. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.